The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Our passage for today is from Ephesians 4, like we've been in, Um, and I'm going to start at verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you. Since no one else has mentioned it, I'll be the first. Huh? Huh? Okay. Yeah. I thought some of us might like that. Yeah, we're stoked about the, the drum cage. It gives us a lot more control over the sound in the room. So I don't know if you could tell a difference this morning, but I know Danny was stoked about it. All right. We are in our last section in Ephesians 4. We've been in this chapter of Ephesians for the last six or so weeks. And, um, and we've been having these stories kind of accompany each sermon, and I've really, really been stoked about getting to hear from different people in our body about what God is doing, how he's moving, people like Jonathan and Caitlin. Um, it's been really a sweet time. As we get into this last uh, section in chapter four, I just want to remind us that the goal that Paul is after throughout this whole section in Ephesians is to remind us that our number one aim is to be unified as a body of believers, is to serve together, to build one another up, to, to take care of the body, that we would reach the fullness of life, the life of God. And so this morning, Paul is going to hone in on our words, our speech, how we, we receive words, how we say them and the motivations behind it. Would you pray with me for a moment? Lord, we love you. God, I'm grateful for the the ways that you're working throughout our body and in our community uh, around this building. God, we're grateful for the the numerous stories we've heard this morning, both of folks uh, in the neighborhood and within these walls, that um, the ways that you're moving, God, you are on the move. And so we just celebrate that with you, Jesus. We ask now that you would um, help my words to, to be fruitful and beneficial for building up your saints, God. Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you help us to listen, to hear from you? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's jump right into it. Uh, Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. 
I really like, that's the NIV. Let me read you the ESV's uh, rendering of this verse. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So this word, corrupting talk or unwholesome speech, um, kind of has to do with something that's rotten or diseased or toxic. So think of something that infects like a wild virus. These are words that cause a lot of consternation and confusion, and they are toxic to the body of Christ. So Paul says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And what he's not saying is, don't say hard things to others. He's also not saying, um, he's not really after getting us to stop cussing, um, though swearing may not be fruitful. Uh, his goal here isn't particularly to get you to stop saying bad words. He wants us to stop using words that cause confusion and or harm, because if they confuse and harm, they will infect the body of Christ like a disease and it hurts the whole. And so Paul says, but only speak such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. That's the way the ESV renders it. As fits the occasion. In other words, when you share, does what you're saying fit the current need of the person you're speaking with? Are you sharing a harsh rebuke? When a simple exhortation or encouragement is needed? Are you being passive and nice when a hard, honest conversation is appropriate? Sometimes it's really difficult to tell what, which is best. And that is why we need the Holy Spirit to be leaning into the Spirit, to the presence of God as we interact with one another in relationship. But more on that in a moment. And Paul says that it... You do these things, you speak in a way that fits the occasion for building up the body that it may give grace to those who hear. That your words may give grace to those who hear. In other words, if you cannot center what you're about to say to your brother or sister in Christ, if you can't center your words in love, you ought wait to say them. Hold off. Commentator Harold Honer says this, the purpose of our speech is to supply that which is lacking to other, in other believers' lives by the utterance of beneficial words, thus contributing to the spiritual growth of the body. The body of believers has many lacks or needs, and beneficial words contribute to their individual growth and enable them to fill up that lack or need among them. So we're called to give grace with the words that we speak. How do we give grace in what we say to each other? Consider Jesus for a moment. In his words out of Luke chapter 4. Jesus is at the synagogue uh, on the Sabbath when he opens up the scroll to read from Isaiah and to give a teaching. So at this point in Jesus' life, he's, uh, he's, a, he's an adult um, he's been tempted by Satan in the, in the wilderness. Uh, he's been anointed. He's been baptized. And this is his first public teaching at the temple. right? And so listen to the, to the words 
that Luke records here about what Jesus says. Right after finishing Isaiah, reading Isaiah, Jesus, it says this. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? What were the words that Jesus spoke to them? What was it that made his words gracious? Well, he was telling the people of God the good news that the Messiah has come. That God has laid his own spirit on that Messiah and that his name was Jesus. He was telling them the gospel. Those are what made his words gracious words. He was speaking the truest, best words imaginable to them. Words of redemption, restoration, renewal, revival, hope, peace, love. Words that showed that a new way of life had come. That you could put off the old life. And a new way of life was here. So these are the kinds of words that you and I ought to speak to one another in the body of Christ. As it fits the occasion, this is our aim. And so if you are truly, if you and I are truly brothers and sisters in a family of God, if there are no mere mortals, as C.S. Lewis puts it, then according to Paul, one of the best things I can do in relationship with you is speak words of grace when you need them, at the right time, the right place. And so this carries a couple of practical implications. First implication is that words of grace, as is fitting for the situation, may not necessarily be soft, fluffy, nice words. They may not necessarily be soft, fluffy, nice words. Fluffy, isn't that good? (laughs) Words of grace draw your brother or sister back into the hope, the peace, the life of God. That's what words of grace do. They don't just try to make someone feel better. They don't heap shame. They don't deceive. They don't cause confusion. They don't seek revenge. Rather, words of grace point us back to the hope and peace of Jesus and the truth. And they bring us dignity. They bring us hope. They build us up. They exhort us. They may even rebuke us, but they are always said with the aim of bringing us back into the life of God. So that's the first implication. Secondly, you've got to know when there is a need or an occasion in order to know when I ought to speak those kinds of words. And that means you need the Holy Spirit. You need to be actively, intentionally seeking God's presence as we interact with one another. Often when we talk to others in conversation, there's multiple conversations actually going on. Right? You might be in a one-on-one with someone. You're, you're actually, you have one conversation which, which is the literal words that you're speaking to each other. And then you have another conversation going on up in the old noggin, right? The conversation about, okay, what am I going to say next? You're processing what they're 
what they're saying, you're, you're thinking to yourself, do I agree with that, or whatever it may be, right? So that's the second conversation. Often we stop there, and we forget about the third conversation, the conversation we're having with the Holy Spirit. God, what might you have me say to this person? And not just say anything, but what might, what might you have me say that would build them up, that would encourage and love and serve them? It's asking those kinds of questions. And so if we're not careful, we'll miss that third dialogue. It requires us intentionally asking the Holy Spirit for his help. God, give me wisdom to offer words of grace to this person right now. And the final implication for speaking words of grace is that we have to get good at listening. Listening well to those we're in relationships with is key. It means that we're not quick to offer the first thing that comes to mind in a conversation with someone, especially if it's a meaningful conversation. It means we're actively listening to God, as I just spoke about. It means we're patient. Uh, One example I I really appreciate. Francis Schaeffer was asked, what would he do? How would he spend if he had an hour with a stranger? Right, One hour, how would he spend his time if he had just that hour to share the gospel with the stranger? And his answer was, if I have only an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. Now that's with a stranger, right? In the, with the aim of sharing, you know, the gospel for the first time maybe. But I think it's something that we could learn from. Because in other words, he, he listened. Francis Schaeffer says that he listened in order to speak the gospel to them. He wanted to know and understand where they were at so that he would best know how to apply the gospel to their need. And while the context for the quote has to do with a stranger and apologetics, I think it's something for us to learn from in the body of Christ as we dialogue with one another. And I want us just for a moment to imagine. Imagine for a moment. Imagine the effect that a group of of people, a hundred or so people, that are committed to speaking words of life continually to one another. Imagine what kind of effect that has on this community. Imagine what kind of effect that might have on others outside of this community. You you take that same idea. What, What happens when this community goes out into their different spheres of influence in the workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, and you speak words of grace, words of life to non-believers. If we were all committed to that, to really engaging the Holy Spirit, having that other conversation as we engage that, that neighbor or that coworker that we're praying for, that we want to see meet Jesus, what kind of impact would that have? I think we underestimate simple truths like this. That speaking words of grace and words of life, intentionally seeking the Holy Spirit as we are in conversation with others, as we pray for them, has a massive impact. Look at verse 30 now. 
Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the basic idea here, grief, right? Pain, sorrow. Don't cause sorrow. Don't cause distress to the Holy Spirit. We're not to speak unwholesome words for two reasons. First, unwholesome words. Unwholesome words stop spiritual growth for one another, for our fellow believers. But secondly, they grieve the Holy Spirit. Corrupting talk grieves the Holy Spirit. So Paul goes on to point out that we were sealed for the day of redemption. Right? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit for you. We're sealed for the day of redemption. This is Paul's sneaky way of saying, you belong to God. And if you belong to God, and the Holy Spirit is in you, and you refuse to listen to him when he's prompting you to be gracious and kind and you choose to be bitter and angry, he's prompting you to speak words of life and mercy or to speak a a hard word but a good word to build them up and you choose to be passive and you ignore the role that the Holy Spirit is trying to play in your life to build, build you and your brother or sister up, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And so Paul exhorts us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. In considering what it means to, to, to listen to or ignore the Holy Spirit, I thought about my daughter, Eva Jean, my four-year-old. Just yesterday, um, she got up from a nap at 6 p.m. Not good. It was a late afternoon, didn't get home in time to do nap time at normal time, and so she gets up. I mean, we, and, and it's like pulling her out of bed, like she, would, she was glad to keep sleeping. But it's like she's got to eat dinner, and we have to get her to bed before midnight. So we get her up. It's about 5.45 or so, and it's not good. And you know, a groggy four-year-old who was perfectly content sleeping is not in the most reasonable state of mind. And so there's just a lot of frustration and I wouldn't quite say anger, but like just exhaustion. And so everything is a giant meltdown and it's like 30 minutes of continuous like meltdown and shaky voice and just tears and tears. And you know, I do okay for the first 10 minutes or so. And then I... I start to take on that stress and that anxiety and that, those feelings that she's having. I start to like, I, I don't start sobbing, but <laughs> I do start feeling that anxious, like lack of peace. And so this is what I say after those, you know, 10 minutes go by. Eva Jean, you need to calm yourself down, okay? Take some breaths. Calm down. If you can't, you're going to have to go in the other room and just you got to chill out. Now, that works about 1% of the time. <laughs> but logic and reason go out the window when you're taking on emotion. In the same way for her, me, me trying to use logic, like just take a couple breaths and calm down, four-year-old. Yeah, yeah, okay, Dad, sure, great. I'll, I'll, I'll calm down. Like, when has that ever worked? Barely ever. And yet, in that moment, I go to that because I'm uncomfortable and I'm taking on, right, what she's feeling. And so, it does neither of us any good. 
And after another 10 minutes of her still in that place, still bummed, still frustrated, maybe even more exasperated, I did it. I take a moment, thank you, I take a moment to calm myself. I take a moment to center myself. I actually take the breaths. Literally. It's okay. What does she need right now? What does she need? She needs her daddy to tell her that he loves her. She needs to be embraced. Eva Jean, come here. Call her over. Come close. I just hug her, and I just hold her. I whisper in her ear, I love you. Over and over and over, I love you. She's crying, she's crying. I start to take deep breaths, deep breaths. You can feel my breath going in and out. And within 30 seconds, calm, peace. I don't say that to sound good or because I didn't respond. I wish I could say I respond that way right away every time. Nope, I go to the 1% and bank on that. <laughs> but I think, I think we forget that what I just described is what Jesus does for us all the time, right? He's constantly doing that with each of us. He holds us close. He reminds us of what's true. I told her, I'm not angry at you. I'm not mad at you. I'm not disappointed. Daddy loves you. God is doing that for us all the time. And while it seems like a nice illustration between me and my daughter or how we relate to God, I actually think that this is something we could learn to do with one another. Now, I wouldn't suggest bear-hugging someone that you don't know very well, right? Unless they're down with that. But really, how often do we just let the anxiety of our brother and sister in Christ, uh, as they're maybe venting about a frustration, or they're upset at us for something, and rather than hear them and, and listen to the Holy Spirit and ask, God, what, they, what, what, would you, what, what would you have me say to them right now that would help them, that would fit this occasion, to serve them and build them up, to speak words of grace, we just take on that stress, right? And we give it right back to them. We ought to listen, to slow ourselves, to be that calming presence, the presence of Jesus to one another. And so when we take on that presence, we're experiencing and, 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 and giving to them, right, the presence that Jesus gives to us when he comforts us. And we reach that calm. And after 30 seconds, they'll stop screaming and crying and all that good stuff. Okay, now, verse 31. Let's keep going. Paul, Paul says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Just go ahead and get rid of that stuff. Okay? Verse 32. No, I'm just kidding. Let's look at it for a second. The, uh, another translation I appreciate. Let every kind of bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and abusive speech together with every kind of malice be put away from you. Paul goes back to bitterness like he did last week. We talked about last week. What does bitterness do? Bitterness deadens empathy and it sharpens critique. Bitterness is a result of undealt with uh, frustration or anger, it, it, it festers. It's that toxic um, speech that we talked about before that begins to fester in our hearts. 
And so we, we begin to lose the, the ability to, to see others as our brothers and sisters, and instead we grow in our critique and our judgment of them. We're quick to assume the worst rather than the best. And I was reminded this week from Tony that another thing that bitterness does is that bitterness seeks to be vengeful. Bitterness wants to get revenge for the ways that we feel wronged and mistreated. And Paul says, let that go. Let that go. There's three sections that Paul kind of is getting at here. He's talking about attitude, which is bitterness. Then he talks about our disposition, right? A disposition of anger or wrath. And finally, he talks about the words that we're saying, or speech, shouting and abusive speech. And malice at the end there is kind of the culmination of all of it, of bitterness, of rage, of anger, of brawling and slander. And Paul's saying, Christian, get rid of all that toxicity in your heart, in your mind, in your words. You are a child of God who has the spirit of God in you. Quit it. Now, I've talked before about this idea of trying versus training, right? We are called to practice the things that Scripture teaches. What Paul says is just stop, right? Let go of these things. Now, if you are someone who struggles with any of those things that he's listed in any way, and you just decided, oh, okay, I'll just try really hard to stop doing it, probably not going to work out super well, right? But if we're willing to train, just like someone who wants to to learn to become the kind of person who can run a marathon, isn't going to say, tomorrow, I'm going to go try to run a marathon. They're going to train for a year and work their way up to running a marathon. And the same is true for us. As we grow in patience and peace and love and kindness, and as we learn to let go of the old self of bitterness, of arguing, of quarreling, of slander, we have to do things that help us to grow into the kind of person for whom it's easy to let go of bitter feelings. But we don't just try really hard and expect it to happen. We have to train, and it's one step, one day at a time. God, calm my heart. Help me to hear from you now. I feel the bitterness beginning to take hold. What would you have me do to to subside that, God? Help me to let that go. You, start, you just start small, simple, asking yourself questions. Asking for the Spirit's help. Dallas Willard, I always love this quote. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. Not trying really hard, but training hard. That's what God has called us to. Finally, verse 32. Paul ends chapter 4 by saying, Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. In other words, be gracious with each other. Graciousness is the antithesis of bitterness. Graciousness is the antithesis of bitterness. It's the opposite of anger, of of wrath, of shouting, of abusive speech. Bitterness is counteracted by an attitude of grace. So what does it mean to be a kind and a a compassionate person, because I think that word kind, especially the word kind, um, 
it often is understood as kind of a weak sort of description. Like it's not used, I, I don't usually think, oh, he's a kind person, she's a kind person. I don't often think of that as a strong attribute. In reality, it is. It's a big deal, right? Being kind literally means being an easy person to be around. There's a, there's, a, there's a sense of calm. You know, one of the things that we've done in our home community is that we've taken time as we've kind of shared about each other and our personality and our upbringing. At the end of each week, that, uh, after someone shares, we'll, we'll just kind of have like an affirmation time where we'll all go around and kind of share something we appreciate about that person. And, and there's been multiple people who I think they would consider themselves just kind of quiet and introverted. Maybe they don't feel like they have much to offer. And it's almost always those people who are the most easy to be around. And by the way, being easy to be around is a big deal because uh, Jesus was very easy to be around. The presence of Christ calms a room. And there are people, some of you have that presence. It's a gift that God has given you. Live into that gift. Recognize that just sometimes your presence, because you're not assuming, because you're gracious with others, you may not say a lot, that's okay. You just being there calms the room, and it's a big deal. So Paul calls us to forgive. How do we know if we need to forgive, right? It's an easy answer. The Holy Spirit and his conviction. The Holy Spirit will convict. But be careful. Be careful because one of the most twisted ways that we can distort passages um, that call us to forgive is to think that whenever I feel wronged, no matter what, even if I'm not even sure if I've been wronged, I might end up tricking myself into forgiving someone who hasn't wronged me. Have you ever had someone come up to you out of the blue and say, I just want to let you know that I forgive you for this thing that you did to me? Don't ever start a conversation that way. That is never, ever okay. Hey, I just want to let you know that I forgive you for the way that you wronged me here or hurt me. Oh, good to know. Thanks. Right? That's about as much as you'll probably get back. We ought to approach one another after thinking about it and praying about it, maybe seeking outside counsel, but go to that person and share, hey, I don't know what your intention was, what your motivation was. I don't want to assume the worst. I, I, this, hurt, this felt painful to me. And I, I just I need to share it with you and yeah, just kind of hear from you. Right? That's a completely different posture than I just want to let you know that I've forgiven you. Thanks, have a good day. Think about the forgiveness that we receive from Christ, right? We come to Jesus with a repentant heart and acknowledgement for our need for forgiveness. And it's the Holy Spirit who brings that conviction and prompts our need for forgiveness and for restoration. But as someone who might feel hurt or wronged, your job isn't to start the conversation that way in order to act as that person's Holy Spirit, right? As the presence of God for that person. You're not, we're not the Holy Spirit. 
let him do his work. He will convict. Your job is to pray, to speak words of truth and life and grace. It's almost as if Paul is saying here, should someone wrong you with their words, right? With this kind of speech that he's talked about, this unwholesome speech. Should someone grieve the Holy Spirit? They're, not, they're ignoring the Spirit and his work. If they use deception or anger to hurt you, forgive them. You're still called to forgive them. Forgive for much has been forgiven. This stage is so creaky. I want us to consider, and and we're just about done here, consider the parable that, that Jesus gives in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant. Just listen to these words. Let me read this story to you. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, just a little bit of cash, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold so that he could repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Not much. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. We often forgive that there is a debt that has been against that we have against us that we cannot pay. And so we harbor bitterness and frustration and we withhold forgiveness. Because we are so quick to forget that there's a massive debt that Jesus has already paid and taken for us. And so that frees you and I up to be able to forgive graciously with kindness. C.S. Lewis in one of his space trilogy books, The Hideous Strength, he says this. You do not fail in obedience through lack of love, 
but you have lost love because you never attempted obedience. Let me say it again. You do not fail in obedience through lack of love, but you have lost love because you never attempted obedience. What is he saying? He's saying sometimes doing precedes feeling. If you wait until you feel up to forgiving someone, I don't know if that day is going to come. And so God is calling us sometimes, not always, to step out and to forgive even before we feel ready and trust that our heart will catch up with our action, that God will work in that way. Let me end right now here by just reading. We said we're just doing chapter 4, but I just want to read the first two verses in chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen? Would you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful for just the practical nature of what you've called us to. You have not called us to believe certain high, lofty, pithy truths, but God, you've called us to live a way of life that is so counter, so different, so unique, so separate from the way that our our culture today, 21st century in America in 2019 lives. God, you've called us to be a people who are quick to forgive, who are quick to assume the best, who let go of bitterness, of anger, of, of slander, and who speak words of grace, a way that you spoke words of grace to us. We are called to gospelize one another, to, to, to remind each other of how Jesus sees us, how he sees my brother and how he sees my sister and, and who he's called us to be and the, and the dignity and the love that he gives us. Jesus, would you make us more and more and more into the type of community who are quick to build one another up and who are able to let go of feelings of bitterness and anger and frustration that we would be able to forgive. Jesus, we're grateful for the forgiveness that you've extended each one of us. We love you. We trust you. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.